Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins, and I'm here with Ira Rosenzweig, the director and editor and so many other things of the film Share, which is out in the world now. And it's S-H-A-R-E question mark, as opposed to Share the Singer, which I was telling some friends about this interview at dinner the other night, and they were like, Share? And they did something like sharing at a table or share, and then they like, lifted their hands in the air and created an arc. And I'm like, what is that last one? And they're like, it's Cher, the singer. So anyway, congratulations on your film and welcome, Ira. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gigi. Tell me before we jump into your background, what is the origin of the title of the film? Did it come from the idea or did the, which came first, the idea or the title? The idea definitely came first. And had I known how many people would immediately think of Share the singer. I may have, I may have thought otherwise when we came up with the title, but no, the title arrived because throughout the movie, you're kind of seeing the the computer screen of all of these characters, and the the prompt share with question mark is pervasive throughout the film, and so that was kind of like we were like, oh, that that kind of makes sense to be the title of the movie, also because of what the film is about, and it's really about how do we engage in this current and upcoming kind of like digital landscape where the film is hopefully asking the audience to kind of look into their relationship with technology and social media in particular. It, it turns a mirror on our experience in a way that really makes you think. And when I first got on this call with you, I told you that I am like so creeped out in a good way about the film. And it, what's unique about it is it's told, it's a story that's told from the same vantage point. And and ironically, we're kind of in that same vantage point right now because we have videos set up that is giving me the creeps again yeah. in the best way. Creep you out so much. That's uh, my job in life. <laughs> well, the thing that I'll also say and it is how Im- incredible the performance is and how, you know, when you are, when you're setting the stage for a story where you really are going to say in one single vantage point the whole time, you have to have strong performances throughout. And I was just taken with every single person that you cast. And and in a way, I did feel like I was watching a stage play for that reason with this pervasive familiarity of social media. So I, I highly recommend checking it out. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, I, every day I would drive home from set just completely blown away by the performances that I was seeing. And I was just feeling so lucky to have the actors that I, I did have. Before we get into all of that, because I have specific questions about the entire process of how the movie came to be, um, how how did you come to be, Ira? How did you start as a filmmaker? Well, I started as a filmmaker through the obvious route of microbiology. Um, <laughs> I was actually a microbiology major in college. Um, I had no designs to become a filmmaker. And then sophomore year of college, took a production course kind of like on a whim and fell in love with it and skipped organic chemistry for the next, you know, the entire semester. And that's kind of, you know, history, but yeah, that, so that I kind of started in college and then I moved to New York shortly thereafter. A friend of mine got me a job kind of producing and editing, um, promos at MTV networks and it's little by little, I don't, I, I guess I'll try to condense it. Basically I rewrote a script that needed to, it was just like a clip spot and I rewrote it to be something that needed to be shot. And they were like, we have no money for this. How are you going to do this? I said, 
with the $2,000 or whatever the budget was for just the edit, I said, I will film this thing. And if you don't like it, I'll pay for it with my own money. And they said, okay, go for it. And so they thankfully liked that the product. And I just kind of became like the go-to comedy guy. I was at Spike TV for a really long time. And then parlayed that into commercials, started my own production company. And then basically was really lucky that I started working with a lot of celebrities. I kind of over the years became known as like one of the, you know, celebrity comedy guys that you would go to. And so, you know, using that body of work started trying to get, you know, what I really went into the business to do, which was make movies and started developing projects. And, you know, luckily finally got one made with Cher. That's amazing. I think that the the most expensive lesson that I learned as a filmmaker was directing something without knowing how to edit and in simply directing to find it in the edit. And it sounds like your pathway, starting with microbiology, was informed by the experience of, well, what are you crafting at the end of the day? And so that feels like an invaluable way to get here. A hundred percent. Yeah. I wish I, I can. It's really hard for me to even like separate directing and editing and all the different parts of the process. Cause like I was really lucky. My boss at MTV networks and spike, he would just let me write, produce, direct, edit, like everything. And so because I guess I learned doing it that way, like I really love even, you know, in the commercial world, like a lot of times, like a director, you know, you direct a project and that's the last you see of the footage and you don't control over it. But like, I've been lucky enough that I've been able to like personally edit most of the commercials that I've done and, or at least be able to do director's cuts of it. And like, it's like, I feel like editing for me is really just a a continuation of the directing process. Absolutely. You're a full stack filmmaker, (laughs) uh, which I just coined that term right now. And I kind of love it. Now I want to specifically hear about your work with celebrities, because that's one of the most intimidating things I could ever imagine. And I think so many of our listeners think, you know, maybe someday Chris Pratt will be in my movie. Uh, But it feels like the idea of sitting down and having a conversation with somebody who is so well known and so with so much experience is really, really intimidating. And if you're the, if you're the guy, the, the comedy celebrity guy, like, what is your best approach to working with talent that has such experience or is so well known? Yeah, no, the first couple of times I did, I was very intimidated. And depending upon who the person is, I can still, you know, it still can be a little bit intimidating. You know, the first time you meet someone, you get, you very quickly kind of get a sense of what the working relationship will be like. And sometimes you're literally, you don't talk to the person before the shoot, you get on set, you're working with them for an hour and it's over. And you've just got to, you know, try to be very efficient and get the best performance you can. Other times people are very invested. There's been a couple of projects where, you know, I worked with Zac Efron a couple of times. And the last time he was like, so into, he, he was like, what do you think of the script? Why don't we rewrite it together? You know, come over my house and let's rehearse, you know? So different people are very different, but it's, I kind of feel like, It's weird being known as a celebrity director in a way because I think it's much more challenging and kind of brings to the fore a a director's skills to work with someone who you don't know, who, you know, you have a a, a wide gamut of what this performance can be like and you craft it with that actor. With a celebrity, most of the time they know exactly how they want to do it before they even get to set. And it's a challenge when you recognize, I don't know if this is working that well. Um, maybe we should approach it a different way. I think what makes someone probably better at 
this skill than someone else is just the confidence to say, I don't think this is working. Why don't we try to approach it a different way? And sometimes that is met with absolutely not. This is what you're getting. So, and other times it's okay, great. So I think that's what makes it maybe a little bit easier for me because at the end of the day, like it's all about the product for me. It's all about what, you know, how good is this going to be in the end? And so I'm fine risking, you know, a snub or, you know, a, a negative reaction just to try to make sure that what we're all working towards is the best that it can be. When you're in those situations where you have only an hour with talent, and you know that something's not working, how do you sort of assess the best way to direct someone based off of like their working style, especially when you have such a limited amount of time? Like, are you looking back at like specific words that you can use, action words that they can like derive from? Or are you having more of a conversation with them? Like, how do you, because that feels like a pressure cooker where you just have to show up and, and shape what it's going to be. Right. It really depends. It, it's, it's, it's different from job to job. If you're really talking about a, a situation where you just have an hour, it's really, it's coming, it's preparation is everything. So it's sometimes that hour is spent just with one or two simple shots and making sure the performance is right for the shot. Other times, you know, like there was a, a spot we did with Kevin Hart and Tiffany Haddish and three NBA players. And like, I think we had two hours to shoot the whole thing. It was a 60 second spot. There were like 17 setups. And so like in situations like that, you literally take, have a rehearsal day, not just, you know, it's not with the actors, but it's a rehearsal day for the crew and figuring out how do we make this happen? Working with the AD, making sure everything is as efficient as it can be. I've had a lot of the, like we did, I, I shot a series of spots with Jason Momoa in the UAE about a year ago. And we had, it was a three day shoot, but we were shooting in five different amusement parks and an incredibly involved, you know, there were tons of things going on. We were shooting up to six cameras sometimes at once. So it's like, it's kind of like finding a military precision where you just make sure that, you know, you have someone for a certain amount of time. And it's like, how are you maximizing that time? Wow. That is an operation. And it it, it could not be more different than the setup of share in that this is a like i said it's a such a unique way to tell a story by a film that is so performance driven and so about building slow tension in a way that is powerful compared to a 60 second spot where you have to tell a story in a short amount of time though there are elements of like how do you have a snippet of a story because you're seeing these characters pop up from different channels in the, in a really interesting way so so let's pivot into talking about the film what is the origins of um of this film and and when did you start to pivot into long form? Sure. I mean, so if I could kind of give this like a kind of a short, at least plot synopsis, it's a movie about a man who wakes up alone in this kind of like futuristic, I guess you could say it looks like a futuristic jail cell in some respect. There's only, there's a shower, a sink and a toilet. He's basically naked. He has nothing there. And the only, there's the only way he can communicate with anything because he doesn't even know if it's, it's people that he's speaking with is this like retro-looking 1980s-style computer terminal on the wall. And he realizes um, pretty quickly that the only way he can survive in this place is by, be- is by performing for the camera that's behind this screen. And it, sometimes he does things that some, something or someone likes, and he's rewarded with credits that allow him to buy things to survive in the space. But he also then quickly realizes he's not the only person in this predicament. and 
he meets these other people and they kind of try to figure out what's going on and is there a way out of here. So that's the essentially the plot. But it, it, if the question of how did it come about, you know, so I was making mostly, I didn't get into filmmaking to do comedy, but I kind of fell ass backwards into comedy, you know, when I was at Spike TV and realized I liked it and I guess I was good at it. So, you know, over the years, people have come to me with different film ideas or scripts that were mostly comedic. And uh, a producer, Doug Banker, sent me an article about this Japanese game show slash reality show. Uh, There's actually a documentary out now about it. Um, I think it premiered at Toronto uh, in in the last film festival. But essentially, there was this aspiring comedian named, they they nicknamed Nasubi. And he signed up for this show. He didn't know what it was, but they basically locked him in a room for what ended up being a year and a half. And the only thing he had were magazines, um, postcards, and stamps. In Japan, apparently, there are a lot of there. There are these sweepstakes that you can find in the back of a magazine, and he had to send apply to these sweepstakes to try to win prizes. So, for instance, like. I don't think he ate for a long time. The first thing he won was like a bag of rice. And so he like he literally was like, I would hope that the people would have stepped in if he was on the verge of death. But like, you know, it, it was just an insane concept. So Doug said, what do you think about this? There's something there could be something really interesting and funny about this. I was like, interesting. Yes. Funny. I mean, this is literally the most horrific thing I've ever yes. read. Like, and I think, you know, ra- I, I know you probably think of me as a comedy person. Like th- I would love to make a sci-fi movie out of this. And so I called my friend Ben Suter, uh, who's an amazing writer. We were working on other projects together. And I said, Ben, what do you think about this? And he immediately sparked to it. And so like, we just started, I think it was around 2017 when we started developing it, but we could not crack it. There were, we saw this as kind of like a way to talk about many, many things. And we were probably trying to cram too many ideas into it. And we just said, you know what, let's put it away. And, you know, maybe one day we'll get back to it. And then the pandemic hit. And so that was probably a year after we put it away. And I, you know, like a lot of other people panicked and I was thinking, you know, it was the day of lockdown and I had two ideas that kind of both informed each other. One was like, I wonder like with the the work I'm doing with, you know, commercials and promos like and celebrities, if, if there's a way that I could figure out how to develop a remote camera system that will let, you know, you could send basically an all-in-one contained package, camera, lights, microphones, like everything, teleprompter, to talent and remote control everything, I would be able to get back to work quicker. And at this, then I'm like, the next light bulb was, wait a minute, Share is like the perfect pandemic movie. Yeah. It's literally like actors isolated in their own rooms. If nothing else, I can send this system, which we ended up calling Crew in a Box that we developed over the next <laughs> I love that. We could send this to them and we could build rudimentary sets in their garage and I could basically direct from home. And so this was the, I had a very busy pandemic. Like I know a lot of people, it was like time to chill out, like figure, you know, how to bake and stuff. But I was like, just like killing myself every day. We've got to take advantage of the situation. And so that's how it all came about. Wow. The thing that stands out to me is it doesn't feel like a pandemic movie. It doesn't also feel like it's tied it feels very it feels very of this moment of this TikTok generation, which I try to stay off of, but you know, it comes it it's pervasive. It comes into our lives. But it also feels like something that we could have seen in two thousand, you know, it and it we could have seen in nineteen eighty. And because it taps into this fear, this very fundamental human fear of or just human nature of performing for validation. 
And that, of course, is exacerbated by social media. I'm curious to hear about the story refining process and how did you distill it down into being so specific and in a way that I think is really effective for the story that you guys ended up telling. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, so very early on for me, it was like, and just kind of thinking about the original story that inspired it and like how it would translate into a sci-fi story, it became very apparent that like we were, you know, it, it, I guess what I was always driving towards was, you know, people have made movies about that were about social media in different respects. But I was like, what is, what would a life lived inside social media look like? where literally that is your whole life and like you're within this system. At the same time, it was also important that it worked for people who weren't so involved in social media. And I hope that it can also stay, you know, I hope there are different levels to it and people can take, you know, different themes and messages from it. But it's also like we, we, you know, in social media, you're performing for a camera and hoping to get likes, but also in life, like you form a persona that you think is going to, work for you in whatever way. We're all different pe- different things to different people in, in different ways. And es- especially on, on social media and online, like we play things up, we play things down. So I thought it would just be a really interesting like psychological examination of like how we, how a human being gets through life. And so that th- those were things that I was interested in very early on. And kind of we use those as a, a North Star as we try to figure out the story. And the story itself where we are, you know, the protagonist, remind me of his name again? Well, the protagonist, I mean, so all the characters in the movie are just numbers. Numbers. Uh, okay. Then I was like, why can't I remember it? Yeah. No, um, that, that was intentional. So his number is, it's seven 14. zeros and then 14. So let's just call him 14. Yeah. So 14 is on camera the whole, the entire movie. You know, there's right. never a moment where we're not seeing him. And so that, I mean, that setup in itself is an incredibly demanding ask for a performer. We can, It's not like you can necessarily, you can't be editing around a performance in the way that you typically would. So I'd love to hear about the casting process and how you were able to bring such like powerful talent together. Sure. And I should start by saying 14, the lead of the movie is played by Melvin Gregg. There are really four main roles. It's Melvin Gregg, Bradley Whitford, Elise Braga, and Daniel Campbell. And so the casting process was really interesting because, you know, and I should kind of talk a little bit about, I was very honest with everybody about how the movie would be made and and what it would be. Because like also, uh, just to give you a, a sense of what it was like talking to producers, you know, I very early on decided I want this movie to like literally just be one camera angle. And we're saying, as far as we know, it's the only movie ever made just from one fixed camera angle. We are cutting between that camera angle in, in different rooms, but like we never change perspective. And that's because you are basically, we're shooting through each of the characters' monitors. And so once I landed on that, I was like, okay, this is, this. in my mind, this was like a really interesting thing to do. Number one, I mean, it felt like I was tying both of my directorial hands behind my back. It felt, you know, the hardest thing in the world to do, but it was also really exciting. So when I would pitch it to people, starting with producers, they, you know, I get on a Zoom with them and they'd be like, "Hey, we love the script. Tell us about how you're going to do it." And I launch into my whole spiel, and they'd be like, All right, "Let me get this straight. Uh, you're never changing camera angles. You're asking people to read text backwards the entire movie, and you're going to have one character on screen for the first 15 minutes of the movie." You know, nice meeting you. You know, and good, good luck. <laughs> 
And like the more I'd hear that, the more, you know, I, I'd get really, really excited about the idea because it just, I don't know, I guess that's, there's something about my personality where it's like kind of fun to prove people wrong. Embrace that chat. Exactly. Exactly. But so, you know, when it came time, we finally got money. I found producers and traveling picture show company that like, you know, really believed in the vision and let me do it that way, which was great. But then when, you know, I, then it would be submitting the, the project to actors. Actors, when I would tell them about this, were really excited because w- my pitch to them was like, look, this is going to feel less like a movie. And as you said, like there, it feels theatrical in a way. So this is going to feel more like a, a theater piece because rather than me moving in for a close up and getting you crying here for 10 seconds, like you, every single scene you are going to be running through from beginning to end. And we're just going to cover it in this fixed angle and we'll do it a number of times, but it should feel more like theater. And so, like, actors were really, I think, intrigued by that and like just the novelty of it. And, you know, like, we, I'm trying to think, you know, there, for instance, like, we wrote the role that, that Bradley Whitford is playing for Mark Marin. I'm a huge WTF fan. Like a lot of things he says is even if you listen to Marin on WTF, a lot of it, it all kind of falls in line with his worldview. So we wrote it for him and we sent it to him and he passed, unfortunately, but his agent loved it. And he was like, what do you think of Bradley Whitford for this? Because he also read Bradley. And I was like, well, what do you mean? I mean, yeah, yes, please send it to him. Yeah. He read it and, you know, he even signed on before our first conversation. I think he was just really excited. So like in the script, we would say not only here's the script, but then I put a little blurb at the end about how it was going to be filmed. And then we did talk about it. But I think actors were really intrigued by kind of a different way of doing it. That's so exciting. And I think that it goes to show that a well-written script and a story that stands on interesting characters like that will find its way that will reach and resonate ta- with talent. I should say originally, so we didn't end up, uh, I, I guess what, what I just said, it probably feels like maybe we did end up sending this camera system to their garages and I directed uh-huh. remotely. Luckily, we did not have to do that. What we ended up doing was building three identical sets on a stage and developed this camera system and communication system that allowed each of the actors to see the other actors on their stage and hear them at the same time. And they could see them in the exact position that they would be in the finished product. Melvin, for instance, like when we, when we sent it to him originally, it was at the height of the pandemic. And at the time we were thinking the only way we could film it was by doing this remote camera system. And at that point he was like, no, 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 thank you. Like I, I would I don't want to have a director. It is ha- like I want someone with me. And so, you know, like to say that the novelty of it made it more attractive is true at a point. I think if we had to do it in the extreme way that we were originally thinking about it, it might have been a harder sell. But yeah. like, you know, the way we ended up doing it, I think really made it interesting. That was actually going to be my next cu- question was about the physical production of it all. And one of the things that stands out to me is it 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 generally like never did I feel like they weren't acting with each other in real time. I'm sh- sure and feel free to disclose or not disclose that you were editing around performances at a certain time. But also there are these moments where they're, you know, bouncing off each other and they might as well be in a room. And it's just like you and me talking on this podcast via Riverside.fm. But there is something that you can't, you you just have to let those performances run and unfold in real time. So So what was unexpected about having two actors or sometimes three actors performing with each other on different sets with that live stream. Yeah. I mean, so 
a lot of people, you know, that's people along the way were like, oh, this is a really efficient way to, to make a movie too. You can just build the one set and keep redressing it for each character. I thought about that, but like the problem with that, it will, there's a, a number of problems, but one is like the timing of the performances would never have worked. And basically, I just think that the performances would have suffered because I can't imagine calling Bradley Whitford and being like, hey, you want to come make this movie where you're acting against the script supervisor? Yeah. Uh, I just don't think that would have ever worked. So, you know, what we ended, we did end up building three identical sets and they could like, at first we were like, oh, maybe each character will wear an earwig because when they're speaking, you know, loudly, they could theoretically hear each other set to set, but not when it was, you know, when they were quiet. So like, it presented a, a ton of challenges and trying to figure out how to make it work because the earwigs didn't work. We realized in a close-up when they turned their head, no matter how small the earwig was, you could see it. Um, and so what we ended up doing is just kind of like old school, taking an amplifier and you know running their mics to it, putting it in the center set. So at times, like when they couldn't hear each other, that's how they heard each other. It was kind of a lo-fi solution. But the visual part of it, so in, in the movie, like you're, because you're looking through each of their screens, through the entire movie you have this text on screen right and if they weren't if the eye lines were not correct it would blow the entire illusion so the thing that i became obsessed about in pre-production was figuring out how to do this and i would call all these vtr people all you know all the playback people in la and they'd first say you have no money this has never been done before get out of here because basically Uh what we were trying to do is you know, everyone knows what a teleprompter is, and Interatron is basically using uh, dual t- uh, tele- teleprompters to put, you know, people's image on the teleprompter screen rather than rather than text. But I needed more than that. I needed like someone on the upper left, someone on the lower left, someone on the lower right. I need like we even needed the text to be triggered because there were keyboards underneath each person's camera that they were actually using, and I wanted them to, to kind of like figure out the speed that they they were typing these things in. So I finally found this guy, Sean Nushenfar, who was working on all the Avatar sequels. And he was like, oh, this is interesting. Let's try to figure it out. So he was like shuttling between my set and like the Avatar sequels. Oh my gosh. You know, like the the most expensive movies ever made and one of the least expensive. But he just was so into the idea. I mean, there were so many things that like, I think people think, oh, it's a, a movie shot from one fixed camera angle. Technically, you know, this must have been a pretty easy movie to make. But in so many ways, it was incredibly difficult. And also, as you mentioned, you know, with editing, I thought I was naive and didn't should have known myself better because I get obsessive in editing. And I'm like, well, if I have 10 takes, it's I'm always trying to figure out, well, if this one is just slightly better. Let's figure out a way to use that take. I thought I was going to film these scenes and just use the entire, like, say it's a two-minute dialogue scene. I thought I would literally do, like, a multicam edit and just kind of hit the buttons and switch back, and I'd be happy. Yeah. I mean, I was being super foolish. I No, you know, it's like, I want to use the first five seconds from take one, and then, the, you know, the next eight seconds from take eight. And so we had to figure out these, like, really crazy ways of using Premiere. You, you know, it, instead of... I would do an edit of the movie where... I was only looking at the main image, right? And so I would edit that just as a test and it would I would that would yield one edit. And then I would do a test where I'm not only looking at the main image, I'm also looking at the picture and picture windows around that main image. That yielded a very different edit and I realized that was the better way to do it because the the picture and picture windows were informing where to cut. 
And so my assistant editor, Christian Whittemore, he had a gargantuan job in a lot of different ways. But first was like figuring out how to build these multicam sequences. It was nine tracks. So instead of looking, you know, just it's basically the main image in the picture and picture window of three different screens. So that ended up how I ended, uh, you know, I I edited the movie. If If I wasn't looking at it that way, it just wouldn't have worked. So we had to kind of innovate a lot of different ways in post. It it makes sense that is the final way or the way that you would be approaching it. Because when watching the film, similar to like when you look at a great painting, your eye should be moving around constantly. And with the way that it's set up with the picture in picture, um, which is how we sort of see the communications and also flip perspectives and see the cuts, you're constantly tracing, you're constantly moving around and you're looking at the text and you're seeing when... and, And that's such a, I think, Sat, a, a subconscious but satisfying experience as a viewer. I, there's also something really cool about you know just the filmmaking process when you are inventing a new technology in a way or a new way of shooting. I mean, they we Charles Hain, the one of the co-hosts of the No Film School podcast, we always come back to the fact that Orson Welles was creating the technology to make Citizen Kane and to get those shots that he needed for that film. And that's how we should be pushing it. And we should also really try to be working with people who are embracing that challenge. Like, how do we make this work? This has never been done before versus, yeah, you can't really do that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, the technology of it all is just, has always been interesting to me, but I don't believe in doing things just as a gimmick. I think probably people here, you know, oh, you know, it's just a gimmick doing this kind of one angle thing for the entire movie. Initially, you know, that arose because that was a way to get the movie made in the pandemic. And so it was initially a concession. But then as like restrictions eased, I thought to myself, you know, there's a strength here because if I can actually lock the viewer's perspective to the back of that monitor the entire movie, I think that will probably make people themselves feel claustrophobic so they can kind of identify with the characters. And so that's why I just would not give up on the idea. Like, sure, there was something exciting and, you know, felt dangerous about doing it that way. And I think that's what motivated me. But like, I, the gimmick for, you know, I don't even like to cut, I don't like to do an unmotivated cut. So to do an entire movie that way would have really felt crazy. So yeah, I mean, I, I think when you can figure out how to use technology to your advantage to tell a story in a different way, there's like, for me, there's nothing better. I really love playing with form, but only if it makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think that, and I'm not going to lie, I was a little skeptical going in because I have seen so many gimmick movies. Like the, I've seen a two one shot movie and like where you're running in parallel. And I think that actually is kind of disrespectful of the form because, you know, if you're doing it, it's, if you're doing it just for the sake of doing it versus doing it as a, an honoring the, honoring filmmaking within that context, which is really what I feel when watching the film. And I feel like it was such, like you said, a a claustrophobic tension building thriller experience that was not leaning on something that was like, you know, it, it felt like it was taken to the end of the line and it was a really effective way to tell this particular story. And that's something that like, I think is hard to do. It's like you're adding layers on layers it sounds like when you explored it, it was like you said, a a means to make something. But then as you talked about it more and as more people said, hey, this 
no, thank you. You're like, no, there's actually something really amazing here. So there's some, it's really powerful that you were able to stick to that and then create something that was so Thanks. Ugh, affecting. No. Yeah, I mean, we tested things because at first I was like, wait, I'm asking people to read text backwards. Can people even do this? So I would have friends be like, okay, I would do like a, a, a kind of a rough edit and be uh-huh. like, before we even shot, be like, can you re- can people read backwards? And it was amazing to find out nine out of 10 people or maybe even more had no problem doing it. It does make you lean in a little bit, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And some people that is, I don't want to do the work, you know, I just want this movie to wash over me. If you're looking for that, it's probably not the movie for you, but like other movies, Memento or other, you know, where you're experimenting with different ways of storytelling, I think you kind of have to take the first few minutes to learn how to watch the movie and then it kind of works. Let's talk about setting up the film language of the movie. And and you mentioned the first 15 minutes, uh, we are just watching this one guy trying to figure out the essentially attention economy that he is in and in this situation where we don't really have much context We know he has a dog that he needs to feed. You really took the time to hold the audience's hand to explain what was going on and also learn with the protagonist. But yeah, so 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 what were some of the intentional things that you decided to lay out as you were building the building that those first 15 minutes in the edit? Yeah, it was really like we'd go back and forth on it in terms of like how and really for the entire movie, like every draft is like. How much do we reveal? How much do we pull back? Ultimately, you know, the movie, I don't think I'm ruining anything to say that in terms of why they're there or how they got there or or things like that, we intentionally did not reveal that much because number one, I don't think it's important to the story. Number two, I kind of feel like it would ruin kind of the experience of the movie for people if we did reveal too much. But so, you know, that really plays a a huge part in the beginning because it's like, how much, who is this guy? You know, how much do we learn about his life? As you said, you learn he's kind of was taking care of a dog and it's his brother's dog and things like that. But it really just became about the thing that was interesting to me was like, how is he reacting to this situation? And you know, that like, it, it's like, you kind of have to introduce the rules. It's like a game in a way, right? So it's like, you don't want to be too explicit and, you know, be too expository about it and try to figure out a way to, as things unfold, it just kind of starts to make sense to people. So that was tricky, I think, in the scripting process and in the edit, because we had more scenes that we shot where it's like him figuring out the computer and, you know, a, a large part of his interaction with the computers, he's getting invalid command back. He doesn't know how to use it because if he just, kind of figured it out. I don't think it would feel very realistic and it wouldn't feel like being there was much of a challenge, but it was, you know, it's in the edit, it's always kind of figuring out like the pace was a big thing. And and this is interesting. I think because I I've done commercials and because, and, and in those situations, you have to be efficient and tell a story in 30 seconds. Also, because I was because of the reactions I get from people, like how are you possibly going to make an entertaining movie in with these parameters, I was really guarding against the movie being boring. And so if you watch the first cut of the movie, it played way too fast. Like it was just Mm. like, it just did not give any moment to breathe, to reflect upon what was happening. And so that was really interesting to me to kind of figure out, just chill out a little bit and it's okay to spend some time in this. Don't be so concerned about like people checking out, just let it happen. And that was a big learning lesson. I mean, that's also a, with long form, and I'm learning this lesson right now because I'm in post on my first feature, you have to 
have those moments to breathe or else it's like overstimulating as an audience member. And I too am like, I come from the world of advertising. I believe all shorts should be under five minutes because usually they're too long. And no, wait, we came up with a hashtag recently on a podcast. Uh, no short, two, something about short shorts. Our listeners will remember more short shorts. That's what we need. But also the benefit of having such a compelling performer is that you can watch them and you are entertained by them figuring out how to turn on the shower and something like that. But that is something that all all the elements need to be coming into play, finding that balance with story, finding that balance with pacing and giving us as an audience like a beat to take in the whole situation. Right. I mean, really, and this goes back to the directing of it rather than the editing, but like realizing the only tool I have as a director is blocking. And so I need to use blocking to create close-ups or mediums, like whatever. And, and so that was a real challenge. I was like, that was the, the main notes I was taking. It's what size frame am I starting the scene with? And what size frame am I ending the scene with? And, you know, because the whole first 15 minutes is jump cuts and like, how does that going to work? So those were really the, you know, the only kind of like elements at my disposal that I could play with. But it was liberate. Like I was always drawn to the movies of Lars von Trier and the and you know Dogma ninety five movement. Because I I was always interested. I feel if you're given all the tools in the world and all the money in the world, you kind of it's harder to figure out like how I'm going to tell a story. How what am I, I can if I can do everything here. You know, what's my guiding principle? And to me, it's more interesting. Like when you strip certain things away and limit your palette, a lot of times I think that ends up making a a much more interesting product. Mm -hmm. This feels like a great exercise for our listeners to do is put a camera in one place and block a scene so you have a close-up, a mid-shot, a a wide, and see how you can make that work within a story. Mm -hmm. So now back to your full stack of filmmaking. Let's talk about specifically editing in like what was the biggest chat two questions what was the biggest challenge that you had to crack like story wise and two what's your favorite hotkey uh biggest challenge story you're saying specifically with editing well i think i see that as the final stage of writing yeah no i mean i think figuring out so the way i like to edit is and I, I get it's weird, you know. I'm working on mostly narrative stuff, but I kind of have a documentarian, like documentary style approach to it because I, you know, I, and I never really had a mentor per se, so I don't necessarily know how other people do it. But I, I think people, I, I look at it as more like collecting footage, and it's until I know the best take, like I can't sleep at night. It's like, well, did I really like? I like this. I like this take, but is it? Or, and I like the way I edited the scene, but do I really know it's the best? And so the way I edit now is for anything really, you you know, even commercials, it's like, I will take the last take of every scene and basically do a rough edit with the last takes of of every shot, I should say. And now knowing where my cut points are, I then go back and like then segment. So let's say I did 10 takes of, of, of every shot. I will segment those shots up only using and looking at the parts that I used in my rough edit. And so like when I was approaching share this way, it, it, it made me mental because I was just like, I could edit this a million different ways. I have three cameras running at the same time. 
So what I ended up doing is kind of what I explained before. Until I we figured out the best approach, which was literally this kind of nine-track multicam. Would like I I was never like, am I sure I'm editing this the right way? And that that nine-track multicam kind of gave me almost like a previs of what the finished product would look like, and and it allowed us to figure out the the right way to cut a scene. I mean, after we did that, we would use all these. We would use like transcription tools to help us better segment things. That was really the key. Like that, once we cracked that, that allowed us to be able to edit the film. In terms of hotkeys, I don't know. I find what do I find myself using the most? I don't even consider it a hotkey, but like I'm constantly using just F for you know match frame to go back to the original take and see what else is there. But yeah, yeah. I think that's probably the one I use. Most. Nice. Well, as we wrap up here, what advice do you have for emerging filmmakers? Um, what advice? I mean, I had been trying over the years to get different film projects off the ground, and I was always looking at it not in terms of what I really wanted to make, but what would I thought would be easiest to make. And that's because I had a comedic body of work. I was like, I should really try to make my first movie a comedy. And not, for whatever reason, like money would fall out, actors would fall out, and they never happened. Share's the first movie I tried to make that that mirrors the kinds of movies I got into filmmaking to make. And I think the lesson I learned from that is with Cher, I was just not going to take no for an answer. Like with these other movies, I feel like other people were driving them, whether they were producers or whoever else. And I would kind of be the co-pilot, but I wasn't making sure they'd happen. I guess my advice is just do what drives you and try to make what your passion is, because that passion is the thing that will get it made. I feel it's so hard to get a movie made and especially on your own terms and in, in, in this case, the specific way that I was trying to get it made. I feel like if you are always going to figure out a way to do it, maybe it will require less money or other concessions you have to make, but just do what you love and don't take no for an answer. I love that. Follow your bliss. I mean, it shows. It totally shows. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Can't wait to see the next one. You got to come back. And our listeners, thank you for listening. You can like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast um, on any podcast platform. Uh, you can share it on social media. And we're across social media at No Film School. Ira, are you on social media? Yeah, you can find me at Ira Rosenzweig. That's I-R-A-R-O-S-E-N-S-W-E-I-G at, on Instagram. And the film has a TikTok account, which is will underscore you underscore share. <laughs> that's awesome and then you can also get more no film school at nofilmschool.com thank you so much thank you thank you